Happy New Year, everyone. That's responsive. That's, you know, that's great. Um, Andy and I very rarely collaborate between the message and the music. And sort of my methodology is I sort of firm up what I'm going to speak on about 5.30 Sunday morning anyway. So it'd be a little bit late to, hey, Andy, guess what? But um, part what I really see the Lord saying right now is that Jesus, one of his primary missions was to reveal the Father to an orphan world. And at one point, we can get into this in a minute maybe, we'll look and see, but at one point Jesus said, um, basically I'm leaving, but I won't leave you as orphans. But I'll send the comforter. And so the Holy Spirit's job, part of, part of his job description is to bring you into an experience where you know the love of God and you know that God really is your father. And so when I was, I was thinking about that this morning, Andy led with good, good father. And then, I, and then he, we did a Holy Spirit too. So, anyway, I I just think that's um, very significant. I believe, uh, I really do believe the Lord's going to pour out um, the presence of the Holy Spirit this this year in a way where people experience the love of God on whole new levels. I really, I really do, I do believe that, and um, in my years of reading uh, reading the Bible, I've discovered that the cure-all for every condition is the love of God. And um, it, it really is, uh, it's just so wonderful to know how much God loves you. I was a Christian, I don't know, 10 or 12 years before I knew God loved me. And um, you might ask the question, What? <laughs> But you can, you can meet Jesus, you can get your sins forgiven, you can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and enter into salvation with not being fully convinced of what God's heart really, really is for you. And um, as I was thinking through these things this weekend and over, over Christmas and over the week, it struck me that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who happened also to be the Son of God, was the most stable man who ever lived. Could, could you agree with me on that? That he, he was the prototypical perfect man. And I want to ask this question because the answer has very profound implications for all of us. Why, why was he so stable? Why was his identity so strong? He could, he could do what he did and do it joyfully. I think that's, I think that's a very important question. It may be the question for all of us. Um, so I had this concept of the stability of Jesus as a man. Um, what was his secret? 
And, and I believe his secret was, my dad loves me. I, I, I think it's that simple. He knew the love of God the Father. And so, I wanted to look at Jesus' life. Actually, it says, let me, let me read from Psalm chapter 40. It's not going to be on an overhead because I thought about this during worship. But in Psalm 40... Verse 6, it says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. And so we also have that verse, Psalm 40, particularly 6 through 8, quoted again over in, in Hebrews chapter 10. But here's, here's something so wonderful. Jesus said in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And if you read the book, some, you know, the wonder of the Bible is no other book in the world can you read with the author. Now, if you read Mystic Moose Tales and came to my house, that would be an exception. You could read that book with the author. I don't know. I don't know if you could stick it out. I don't know if I could stick it out. But no other book in the world can you read with the person who wrote it. And so when you see Psalm 40 in the volume of the book, it is written of me, you discover Jesus' person, his life in detail is sprinkled throughout the entire Old Covenant, Old Testament. Uh, where he was going to be born, it's in, it's in um, the book, it's in Micah. It, it tells very clearly where he was going to be born. Um, how he was going to die. How serious, you know, to the detail of how he would look in the volume of the book, it's written. Um, what tribe he would come from, what his job description was. And actually, when you read Isaiah 53 and when you read Isaiah 42, you discover um, two very significant things. In Isaiah 42, you discover how absolutely sane and secure and confident Jesus really was. But in Isaiah 53, which is above us here, you find out why he shouldn't have been. The things that worked against him. And so um, let's read this together. You ready? Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Let's stop right there. This is not a picture of Jesus on the cross. You actually find a picture of Jesus on the cross later in this chapter and in the, in the previous chapter in Isaiah 52. 
But when you read these verses, you're actually reading that Jesus began his life under great difficulty. You know, how many of us think if we'd have been well born, if we'd been born better to richer people, nicer people, we would have had a better life? Well, Jesus was born in the worst conditions imaginable. He was a Jew under Roman occupation. And here's something that really struck me. He was not a good-looking man. How do you know? Well, I believe that's what it tells us. Um, He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He did not have a personal magnetism. He was not a handsome person. He did not automatically draw people to himself and then was able to capitalize off of that and have a great life. And so when you look at the most stable man ever, he was born in an impoverished situation. Herod tried to kill him before he was three years old. Their whole family had to move from Israel to Egypt until Herod was dead. He was not good looking, and he did not have a personal magnetism. How many of you would like to have all those things on board? It goes on. Well, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Now, of course, that's not talking about the cross. Nobody on the cross is beautiful. Nobody beaten to death is beautiful. Nobody streaming blood and disfigured by abuse is beautiful. They are giving us a picture of what Jesus was like as a person. He didn't have um, benefit on hardly any level. So, he wasn't part of the Jewish nobility. He wasn't a part of the priesthood. He was rumored to be an illegitimate child. But he spent a life of rejection, not just in his ministry. He was nothing to look at, the Bible tells us here. In the volume of the book, Jesus said, it is written of me, and Isaiah 53 details Jesus' life. Well, we also find out for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. We see that there in the first verse. And what you learn about Jesus was, although he was planted in difficult circumstances, he had a completely different viewpoint of growing up than most people. He grew up before him. I have no idea uh, what age Jesus was when he began to understand who he was and when he began to develop this ability to not live to people, to not look to people's approval, to not look to people's faces. Listen, if happy faces set you free, sad faces bind you up. If the praise of men gets you rolling, the condemnation of men will sink you low. That's all there is to it. The fear of man is a snare. If you live to please men, you're going to have a very unhappy life. But Jesus learned how to live life in the love, in the radiant love of his Father. 
And it was through that radiant love he could be the most stable, normal, functional man who ever lived and could impart great hope to any other man or woman or child who don't know how to live yet, whose life is in turmoil and confusion. That's a pretty good point. Have you ever thought Jesus was ugly? I don't know if he was ugly. So, you know, some people probably think that's blasphemous. Man, I'm just reading the book. I'm just telling you. And that, give, that gives me such hope. Does that not give you hope? To think you don't have to be awesome looking. You don't have to have the most sparkling personality. You don't have to have the greatest connections in the world to know God in a way that he will make you a success and pour favor on you like rain. Because that is who you are. That is, that is your inheritance. Listen, a, a lot of people don't seem to understand that life will generally not just hand you success. You are going to have to work at what you're doing. You're going to have to pay a price. You don't pay a price in the sense that you earn things, but you do pay a price in that you learn what it is you're doing. Everyone is in some kind of an apprenticeship right now. And how you function in that apprenticeship determines how far you go uh, in your in your given in your chosen field. Um, it's, it's so important to understand it's better not to have been handed things. It's better to have suffered through things and learned things a difficult way than to just be given everything in life. The Bible says an inheritance quickly gained will not be. Blessed in the end. My goodness, look at professional athletes. How many of them are broke? They made 20, 30, 40 million dollars. But because of the way they got it, because of the way they grew up, because of who it is they emulate, because of the internal life that they live, they can't hold on to amazing opportunities and finances and resource that they've been given. Happy New Year. Did I say that already? Okay. Just checking. Now, when you go to Isaiah 42, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go there over the, over the overhead, but Isaiah 42 begins to tell you how Jesus did what he did. It begins to give you um, a framework for how he thought and, and how the relationship he had with his father rolled over into the kind of successful life that he lived. And so in verse 1 of Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, Isaiah 42, verse 1, is the equivalent of the Gospels where it says, where the voice of God comes out of heaven, the audible voice, and says to Jesus, you are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. And the idea there is 
Jesus knew the love of his father, and Jesus knew that his dad was pleased with him before he ever did the remarkable things he was called to do. And see, that's the foundational concept. You cannot live towards approval. You have to live from it. It's unhealthy to live toward approval. If you live to, okay, if you live toward approval, you become controllable. What do I mean? Well, um, girls and boys, if a girl wants to please a boy, and the boy says, the only way you're going to please me to have sex with me, and you do, you've just been controlled by the fear of man. You've just been controlled by the desire for approval. But see, the wonder of the gospel is we have what we don't even know we have, and we have what we're all looking for. That's the crazy thing. You find it in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, the devil offered Adam and Eve something they already had if they would disobey. And they didn't understand what they already had, and so they disobeyed and they lost what they already had that they were trying to gain. And that's such a picture of life. If you know you've got the love of God, if you can understand that, if you can put your faith in that, if you can begin to believe that, if you can begin to draw from the presence and the power of God that internal sense of how he cares about you, how he loves you, uh, who you are to him, what you mean to him, you will become a person that cannot be controlled by outward circumstances and situations. You become a king or a prince instead of a pawn. You become an overcomer. You become someone that can be independent. You can become an independent thinker. You don't have to check with the crowd to see what the next thing is everybody think is cool. You can be cool. You can be the person that sets the atmosphere for your region or your area or your business or your company, your family. That's what can happen when you know how God thinks about you. Oh, that's so good. Verse 2 of Isaiah 42, he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now, here's the interesting thing. Over in the Gospels, Jesus did that on a number of occasions. He cried out in the streets. He cried out in the temple. If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. What does that mean? He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. It means that he will not pursue acceptance in the wrong way. I've, I've heard this said, when you're building a life or you're building, say building a ministry, it's more applicable in, in ministry. The more self-effort you put into a ministry to be successful is the same amount of self-effort you're going to have to continue to put in it to stay that way. It, it becomes political. You, tr- you, you know... You try to talk to the right people at the right time to get what they have, get what they offer. You shun people that won't help you along your pathway. It's a terrible way to live. It's a dangerous way to live. It's a perilous way to live. Because you can, and the problem is you can become successful doing that, but it doesn't usually end well. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He won't pursue the adoration of people. But then at the time, he will lift up his voice. When he's got something to say, he's very clear. He's very clear. 
But he's not doing what he's doing to please people. He's not doing what he's doing to gain acceptance. He has it. He's simply doing what he's doing because of the Holy Ghost life inside of him after he gets filled with the Spirit and the destiny he knows his Father's put on his life. He is so confident that whatever it takes, he'll go the distance. Whoever stands in his way to try to stop him, he has confidence that he'll overcome. Not through subterfuge, not through lies, not through deceit, not through posturing, but by abiding in the one who loves him and has called him in to his destiny. No false news, no trickery, no conniving, no political chicanery, simply living a life in God without shame in positive faith, knowing who he is, knowing who you are. Oh, somebody. Verse 3 in Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Now what that means to me, as I've understood it, is Jesus was of this nature. He knew his Father's love. He could love anybody. A bruised reed he would not break. He was not afraid of human weakness. A bruised reed he will not break. He, he isn't intimidated by, by moral impurities. He, he isn't intimidated by, by failures. He isn't intimidated by needy people. He doesn't distance himself from the weak and needy. Because he's so well established in himself. It doesn't matter if a bunch of needy, weak people follow him around. It's the only kind of people he found out there, I think. But uh, a bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. What Jesus would do is he would speak into a life of a person barely making it so that they could do better. He would blow on whatever ember he found in a person's life. Now, a lot of times leaders aren't that way. Uh, if, if, you know, an ambitious leader doesn't want weak people around, he wants successful people around. Business pretty much the same. But Jesus was different from that. That's a pretty, pretty high calling. Verse 4, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. I believe what we find here as it describes Jesus is because... He knew his father, he was failure-proof. How would you like to be failure-proof? Now, failure, I, th I think there's external failure and internal failure. And I don't think any of us are free from external failure. I mean, actually, in some ways, you can see what happened to Jesus as the hugest failure ever when he was crucified. Such weakness when they, when they beat him up. That looked like failure. All the apostles and disciples thought it was failure. But I believe true success is an internal attitude of heart. It doesn't mean you won't go through things that turn out in a way that you wish they hadn't turned out. But that doesn't mean you have to turn out that way. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
you can fail and not be a failure. Matter of fact, most um, successful businessmen have one, two, or three bankruptcies in their past. That's just a, that's just true for for entrepreneurs. And so there's this reality of failing and not being a failure. And here's why that's so important. If you're afraid of failure all the time, you have a stronghold of fear that's dominating your life. And that kind of fear will drive you all the time because you're afraid you're going to fail. I mean, some of the best things that ever happen to people is when they fall flat on their faces. Really. There's something wonderful, and I don't recommend this, but if it's happened to you, pay attention. It hasn't happened, ignore this part. But there's something wonderful about failing, either morally or ethically or financially or in business or somehow, and once you've failed, you find out it's not final. And you find out God really loves you. He knew you are going to do that before you did it. And so there's this idea of not having a poverty or failure mentality even when you're not always outwardly successful. But there are things to be gained through those those episodes. To me, a person uh, to, to be admired is a person who stays in faith no matter what's going on, who stays in hope no matter what's going on who can look at difficult situations and those situations don't torment or intimidate him or her. And everybody's going to have them. We need to know God so well that nothing disturbs us. We need to... Now, am I there? No, I wish I were, but I'm I'm looking. There it is. I haven't arrived, but I've left. I spent... Several miserable moments this summer trying to get this building built. But sometimes things so large and so big happen to you that it dawns on you, worrying about this is not going to help at all, and you start laughing. I mean, when we found out we had to pull the heating and air off the roof and uh, re-roof the whole roof and pay thousands of dollars and get a crane, and we wouldn't be in here yet if we had to do all that, and there was water pouring through the bathroom, it was like, a faucet, not a leak. And there was, you know, trouble. I thought, well, whatever. I wore my worry out pretty much years ago. Now, I'm not saying I can't worry about things, but I just thought something will happen. <laughs> And it did. Old Denny back there on the soundboard fixed it for $200. Instead of what, I don't know, 10,000, whatever, I don't know. Weeks of cranes, disconnect air condition, you know. I tell you, worry and fear is, is you use your imagination for the wrong thing. See, that, that was what was coming to me. Well, you're going to have to rent a crane, $3,000. You're going to have to lift the air conditioner up, disconnect it, recharge it, disconnect the power, $2,000. New roof, blah, blah, blah. Put it back down, something else will happen. Blah, blah, you know. And you, but, but that's what fear does. That's what anxiety does. You lay hold by 
the wrong kind of faith, and none of that stuff happened. It was, I would have paid, I could have paid out of my pocket 200 bucks. It was a $200 fix posing as a monster. And when he growled at me, I laughed. I'd already worried all that week about something else. I was done. <laughs> oh, I don't know how it all works, but that makes for a really, really good story. But he will not fail nor be discouraged. That's so good. That is so good. How? Verse 6 of Isaiah 42. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. Jesus was successful because he held hands with his dad. The volume of the book, it was written of me. His life, his death, his character, his nature, his resurrection, his purpose, all there in the book. Now, um, shift gears here just a little bit. Let me see what I've got over here. Yeah, read this with me. This is John 14, 6 through 11. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Now, let me stop there a second. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. I've done this uh, a little bit differently there. Lord, show us the Father, and we will what? Be possessed with unfailing strength. Now, now here's something we need to really listen. We need, we need to hear this. The apostles and the disciples knew Jesus was good. They, they saw the wonders he did. They saw the compassion. They saw the dedication. They saw the commitment. They saw the kindness. They saw all the fruit of the Spirit manifested in the life of Jesus. And yet, they weren't stable yet because they still had questions about what the invisible God was like, the Father. And that describes a whole generation of people. They know Jesus, but what's the Father like? And they read the Old Testament, they get scared. And, and there's stuff in there, I don't get it, whatever, but I can't explain all that. But see, there are people who know Jesus, but they don't know. It's not that they don't know the Father. They don't have an accurate picture of who he is and what he's really like. Is that not amazing to you? You could walk with Jesus. You could know Jesus intimately. You could be his apostle. You could see the miracles. You could do miracles with him. You could live with him. And yet, in your heart of hearts, 
you're still not sure if God loves you. I think a lot of people are there. And so Jesus, you know, verse 8, we read that. Lord, show us the Father and is sufficient for us. See, because what, what, what Philip was really saying was, if I could see the Father as accurately as necessary, I would be a much different person. That's really what he was telling Jesus. I would be filled with unfailing strength. It would be enough. And when he meant enough, how would you like to one day wake up and think, I have enough in my life to sustain me for the ever? And it would be true. That's what he was talking about. It'll be enough. See, everybody's looking for enough. You know what? Everybody's looking for this hard to grasp thing that will assure them everything is all right for the rest of their lives. They're looking for that stability. They're looking for that confidence. That's what Philip was looking for. Jesus, show us the Father, and I'll never fail again. I'll make it to the end. I'll be strong the whole way through. If I saw him accurately, there was there's nothing that could... Throw me off course. There's nothing that could deter me. I know instinctively if I could see him accurately, if I was assured he wasn't mad, if I could be assured he wasn't mean, if I could be assured he wasn't cruel, if I could be assured he was truly fair, if I could see him that way, I would be good to go. Nothing could hold me back. And Jesus said... Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. See, Jesus' mission was to show people what the Father was like. He dies for his enemies. Jesus is the most marvelous person. He dies for his enemies. He healed, really. The Bible proves this out. He healed every single sick person who ever came to him. I'm not saying he healed every single sick person that was sick, but he healed every single sick person who ever came to him according to what we read in the Bible. He became so proficient at healing sick people, they would literally, and you can find this in the Gospels, sit him in the city square and everybody who walked by and touched him got healed. He was a depository of health. He was a depository of healing. He spent 80% of his ministry making sick people well because that's what his dad was like. But he had never been seen accurately. Even, even you see um, the disciples get mad because they get rejected and the, this town won't receive them. And, and I think James and John had this spirit of murder. Can you imagine two of your disciples having a murder spirit on them? And they come to Jesus and they say, Hey, uh, you want us to call fire down and kill all these people like Elijah did? And Jesus said, No. 
You don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And Jesus, in essence, rebuked that attitude that Elijah had all the way down through the ages into the Old Testament. And it rings true today. Jesus does not want us to kill people. He wants us to save people. Because God is a good God. God is holy and God is righteous, but He is good. He loves us. He wants the best for us. Mm. God has to trick you into knowing you're loved. Let's pray this together. Dear Lord, I heard Andy, that was it. Anybody want to, this is a tricky prayer, but it'll it'll help you. Dear Lord, if necessary, trick me into knowing you care for me. I've had, um, I've talked about this before, a number of experiences with the Lord uh, where he showed me in, in a u- unique way that he loved me. And it's usually in situations where I'm expressing um, insecurity. How many of you are insecure? Awesome. Where I was, <laughs> I was going to bed one night, and um, I usually go to bed before Donna does, so I was there by myself. It was dark, of course, and it suddenly dawned on me I hadn't read the Bible all day. And as a pastor, you're supposed to read the Bible. <laughs> and so I thought, well, what can I do? Because I don't want to get up. Uh, I said, I know. I'll quote, I'll quote a Bible verse from memory. And so I, the first one that came to me was Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I thought, that feels pretty good. I'm one of those guys, if one is good, two's better. So I thought, I'm going to take another lap. And I was meditating on my way through. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And I stopped and I thought, that makes no sense. I'm alive, I'm dead, whatever. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Okay, by faith, the Son of God lives in me. Crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And then it struck me here, Paul writing this said, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But Paul was writing that letter to them. So in a letter to them, Paul starts writing about God loving himself. Oh, oh that, that's, uh, that's a key there. You need to tell yourself God loves you. How many of you realize there's a part of you that talks to you that can't fully be you because you're listening? How many of you know what I'm talking about? I'm not even saying the devil. I mean, it's just weird how we're configured. But And lots of times that part of you is telling you stuff that's not really true. 
How do I know? Because you're not free when you listen to it. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So you need to take a position where you tell yourself what to believe. You tell yourself, God loves me. God loves me. I tell the Lord all the time, Lord, I'm eligible for you to love me more. I know that's not right theologically, but I don't care. I want to feel more. So whatever, just pour a little on me here. Just cut loose. I'm eligible. I'm asking for it. I'm available. Other people may not be, but I am. Matter of fact, give me their portion. If they don't want it, throw it over here and just hit me with it. Help me. Touch me. Let me know. Here I am. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm, here I am. You're the I am. Here I am. Christ lives in me. The I am. Anyway, so I go through all these weird things, but it's a, you should live in here. You'd, you'd be excited. So, so I had quoted that all the way through twice and suddenly a big green and yellow circus sized tent came up over me. when I was quoting the part who loved me and gave himself for me. And then it diminished, and I thought, wow, I think I'll, let me quote this again. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And when I got to this part, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I could see it, I could feel it, but if you'd have been in the room, you wouldn't have been able to see it or feel it. It was just an encounter I was having, but it was as real as real could be. It was this big, how many of you know what John Deere colors are, green and yellow? John Deere tractor? Yeah, this big John Deere looking yellow and green circus tent came up over me while I was quoting that verse. And then I fell asleep. And... The next day, I completely forgot about it. I completely forgot about it. And on the way to church, to work, the Lord asked me the question, what did you think about last night? Really, he, he cranked it back up. I wasn't even, I hadn't even I'd forgotten about it. And I said, oh, man, I don't have a clue as to what that was all about. So the Lord does something interesting a lot of times. He'll ask you to tell him about whatever it is. And so he said, tell me about it. And I said, oh, well, you know, I was quoting Galatians 2.20. And uh, whenever I got to this part where Paul said, who loved me and gave himself for me, this big green and yellow John Deere looking circus tent came up over me, completely surrounded me. And the Lord said, John's dear to me. John's dear to me. And I knew instinctively what he was talking about. John, the disciple, called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. John thirteen twenty three. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John nineteen twenty six, and the disciple whom Jesus loved stood by. John twenty verse two, the other disciple whom Jesus loved 
talking about John. And see, one, two, three, four times John writes this and calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. What did Peter call John? John. Nobody else called him the disciple whom Jesus loved. But see, John knew Jesus loved him. And what the Lord was tricking me into understanding was I had that same John Deere, John's Deere mantle covering over my life as the Apostle John did. And, and here's, here's the interesting part. So do you. You know, human tragedy, I've thought about this. Terrible things happen to people. But I think one of the worst things that happen to people is to be God's favorite person and not know it. Which is the way he looks at every single individual. Would your life be different if you woke up every morning and you knew you were God's favorite person? Would your life be different? Would it be, would it be different? Well, see, that's the reality. You, you see, that's already there. What, what, what else has to happen? And see, part of the trick is you, you, you can believe in the love and not believe the love. I believed in the love of God. Didn't mean I believed the love. How many of you are tracking with me here? You, you can understand the concept and not have the reality. Actually, the, the, the um, 1 John 4, 16 through 19 says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us doesn't say believed in. We have known and believed the love God has for us. Why don't, why, don't we, why don't we say this today? I believe the love that God has for me. I believe the love that God has for me. Now, some people say, well, I don't, therefore I shouldn't say that. No, you don't, therefore you should say that. That's exactly what you should say, is you should agree with this reality instead of with the one that doesn't work. I believe the love that God has for me. Let's say that again. I believe the love that God has for me. Um, sometimes I get so busy getting out of the house, I'll have a briefcase in one hand, a drink in the other, and my keys in my mouth looking for my car keys. Who, who else? Who has ever done that besides me? You see, I'll be looking for what I have. And one time the Lord says, yes, the answer is in your mouth. 
And see, when I talk about believing the love, you don't have to believe the love to agree with the reality that believing the love is the way to access and enter into it. Because your mind, which doesn't serve you well a lots of times, wants to tell you that's a lie. Well, what are the quali- what are the characteristics of believing a lie? Being miserable. What are, what are the characteristics of believing the truth? Being free. I have known and believe the love that God has for me. I really like that. One verse here. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. First John 3, 1, same verse in the Weiss translation. Behold what exotic, foreign to the human heart, love, the Father has permanently bestowed upon us to the end we may be named children of God. And we are. Alien love. Love from another place. It's not earthly love. It's alien love. It's exotic love. It's a love other than what we're used to. It's a love that's transformational. It's a love that can cause the most unstable person to be stable. It's a love that can cause a person to have confidence who doesn't have any confidence. It's a love that can break off fear and anxiety and trouble. For perfect love cast out fear. It's the very nature of God. And God has deposited in every single believer that love, but it's tapped through agreement and belief. Let it out. Let it up. Let it flow. I believed the love. Yeah, I think, John Mark, you have something to share? Why don't you come on? I've got one thing I want to do at the very end, though, that I think will be helpful. How you guys doing? Good, good. Can you guys stand up real quick? Um, I used to do this in the old building. I'm trying to find the flow now. How to run up, run up here and be a part. But man, that message is awesome. That message is really awesome. I was thinking while um, my dad was talking about, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, this is a new year, and I think new years are important. It's important for us to see that it's a new year. I also uh, don't believe that God sees it as a new year. I think that God sees every day as new. And I wanted to say something. I felt, and I was sitting back there writing it down. I thought, um, maybe this is just for me, and I felt like the Lord said, no, this is something we should say. And that's this, is that uh, your past is not real. Our past is not real. The past is not real. The past is just the way that we have developed a context for where we are right now. But your past isn't real. It's not something you can go back to. It's not there. So the bad news is that all the great things you did in the past, those things don't exist. The good news is all your failures, they don't exist either. You know? 
And so I think the beauty of this is that this is a new year for you and for me, and that today, right in this moment, is an absolute fresh start. You are a fresh person. You are a blank canvas right now. And I don't mean that in just... It's not just a metaphor. It's not just a nice thing to believe. But everything that you think you are is passed away. And it passed away when you woke up this morning. Because the past is just the way that you contextualize where you are. And you can recontextualize where you are. Your past is not who you are because it's not real. It's just an idea. And so here we are in the new year. And we can look forward into the year, and in all honesty and in all realness, we can decide that what was is not who we are. That who you are is something totally different. Who you are in this moment is actually who you are, and in this moment you are a person who's loved by the Father God, who is a brother or sister of Jesus, the brother God. And who is filled with the Holy Spirit, the helper and the comforter. That's who you are right now. And that's your actual reality. And all these sort of thoughts that spin around in your head about who you are is something else. And those things can change. And those things aren't always real or even relevant. And so I had this thought this morning. I was praying in the new year. And we all make these new resolutions, things we want to do. These ideas of how I want next year to be. Uh, different than last year. And I remember even praying for finances. And I was like, this is so boring praying for finances. I was like, cause will there ever be a year when I stop praying for finances? It's like, no matter how much money you give me, I'm going to ask for more, right? And I like money and I'm okay with praying for money. I'm okay with asking for money, but I got really bored because I started to think of how blessed I've been and how blessed we all are. Right? And I started to think, I was like, that's really boring. I was like, you know what's not boring? Is what if I ask God what you want for me next year instead of just telling you how I want my year to be different? Because I don't always know what I even want for myself. I don't even know what I really desire, right? So I started to pray and ask the Lord. And then I started to think about all the greatest things in my life. I promise I'm going somewhere. I didn't mean to go so long. I thought about all the greatest things. I've worked hard and labored for things that I received and I enjoyed it when I got it, right? But all the best things in life were just given to me. All the best things in life were things I didn't dream up, things I didn't think up, things I didn't really work for. I had to work to keep some of those things. But all the greatest things in life were surprises, And so what if we don't just pray for what we want next year to look like? What if we pray that the dreams that God has for us manifest in the next year? Are you guys okay with that? All right. Well, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your heart, the heart that you have for us, the love and the way you feel for us and the goodness you have for us in this next year. We have things we want to see different next year. We have things that we want to change in this coming year. We have things that we want and we have things that we think we want, Lord. But right now, we want to give you permission to give us what you have for us. And we uh, right now give you permission to manifest the dreams that are in your heart for us in this next year, Lord. And we refuse to be limited by the things we think we want. We refuse to be limited by our ideas of the past. And we refuse to allow the past, to contextualize who we think we are today and in this new year. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. The way I wanted to conclude this morning was to invite everyone here who who really wants to just to come up. Um, Because 
God's our Father, and He wants us to know it. And the Holy Spirit's the one that begins to impart to us. So if you want to know the love of God more, why don't you come on up here? Andy, the crowd's going to sing Good, Good Father. And let's just connect with the Lord. We'll stay here just as long as you feel like it. But uh, let me just invite you to come on out of your seat, take a step, and come on up here while we uh, end with this worship this morning. And you're, you're stepping into something new. Come by faith. Step into something new. And I might help Andy sing if he asked me real.